Well, hey there, I'm Joshua Johnson, and the nightlight is on for Thursday, February 8th, 2024. It was a big day at the U.S. Supreme Court with justices considering whether Colorado could kick Donald Trump off the ballot over his actions on July 6th, 2021, the insurrection. Based on some of the reporting, it looks like the court might rule, well, I'll tell you in just a minute, and I'll walk you through some of the legal issues, and also one of the arguments that I think Colorado could have made that would have made its case a lot stronger. Plus, there's been a lot of talk about the future of the mainstream media. Are they dying? Maybe. And perhaps some of them need to go. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com for more information on this show, to follow my podcast, buy some merch, or put a few bucks in the tip jar. What a busy day this has been. Hello to everybody who is watching on YouTube, Facebook, Twitch, or the site formerly known as Twitter. For those of you watching on Twitter, please know that you can join me over on YouTube. I am at Nightlight Joshua, where you can take part in our live chat with all of the other wonderful people who are watching right now. Hello, Nora. Good to see you today. Hello, Holly. Good to have you there. Sarah, good to see you. I will wave back to you as well. But remember, if you're watching over on X, that you can join me over on YouTube to share your questions and thoughts and comments about what we saw today at the U.S. Supreme Court, particularly if you watched the proceedings. And I would love to hear from those of you who are on the stream right now, if you watched or listened to any of the oral arguments from the U.S. Supreme Court. I did indeed listen to the whole thing, and it was fascinating. I, I really did find it an enormously worthwhile exercise. I know that sometimes legal proceedings are enormously wonky, and this one was no different. It was very, very wonky, but it was also very worthwhile. And I thought it was an interesting exercise to watch, to take part of, or to take part in, just for a sense of kind of where the court might be heading with all of this, and what some of the deeper issues are underlying the fights at the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I, I'm a little bit surprised at the way that the state of Colorado laid out its case, but again, I'm not a lawyer. I just claim that off the top. Hopefully, my view of it will give you somewhat of a layman's perspective on what happened today from kind of a plain English point of view and some of the big issues that came up. I will disclaim off the top that I do not have any tape of the Supreme Court hearing, unfortunately, partly because... <laughs> As I was putting the show together, I don't know how many of you deal with migraines or tension headaches, but one bit me right in the face. And so I had to go off and do a little quick triage and self-care. So I got a lot of links, got a lot of references, unfortunately no tape, but I will do my best to talk you through what happened today as comprehensively as I can. So let's start with what happened at the U.S. Supreme Court. First of all, let's back up a little bit. This is just one of the legal dramas that Donald Trump is facing in the run-up to Election Day 2024. Today, actually, is somewhat of a fortuitous time for this to be happening because today, Nevada is holding its Republican caucuses. This is a process that Nevada's Republican Party put together specifically to advantage Donald Trump in his run for election, for re-election. The Nevada primary already happened. Nikki Haley ran in the primary. And she lost to no one, literally, because more people voted none of these candidates than voted for Nikki Haley. So today, as voters caucus in Nevada this evening, they will do so with the backdrop of what happened at the Supreme Court. Donald Trump went outside the gates of Mar-a-Lago today to speak after the Supreme Court hearings happened. 
gave what felt very much like a campaign stump speech and answered a few questions about what happened uh, in the Supreme Court. But the court's questions are deeper and they're a little bit bigger than just Donald Trump. They have to go to some of the legal issues around insurrection. Part of this is so hard because, thankfully, we haven't had a whole lot of insurrections in this country. We also haven't had a whole lot of attacks on the property of the United States, certainly not to the degree of what happened on January 6th. I mean, it's been said repeatedly, and it is true, that the last time the Capitol was attacked before January 6th was in the War of 1812. So we're talking about something that happened, an act that happened back in the War of 1812, and we're talking about the kind of insurrection we have not seen since the Civil War, which ended in 1865. So we're talking about a long history with zero legal precedent for the court to deal with, for justices to talk about, but a lot of other case law and situations that have happened in the interim. So there's a lot of extrapolating going on. Well, how do we make sense of what's happening now, considering that it doesn't happen almost ever. And thank God it doesn't, right? But how do we make sense of all of this? Well, let's dive into what the issue was. Again, we talked about this on the show before, but just to remind everybody, because there are so many cases involving Donald Trump, this is not the case of whether or not he has criminal immunity for his actions as president. That's a different case that's working its way through the courts, and that's going to work its way up potentially to the Supreme Court pretty soon. This case has to do with whether or not Donald Trump's participation in what the state of Colorado considered an insurrection disqualifies him from being able to be on the ballot in Colorado. What the U.S. Supreme Court does in this case could bear just on the state of Colorado. It could have larger effects on every state as it makes decisions all across the country. And that's one of the things that came up is how broad of a scope that this case should have in terms of what the US Supreme Court does going forward. But that's this case. This is not the, are you immune from criminal prosecution? That's linked. But the issue before the Supreme Court today was whether or not Colorado can keep Donald Trump off the ballot. If you look at some of the reporting around the web, and I have, I've been trying to avoid it, but it's kind of impossible. Most people who watch the oral arguments, listen rather to the oral arguments today, believe that the court is going to rule on Donald Trump's side. It seemed like from the kinds of questions that the Supreme Court justices were asking Donald Trump's attorney versus the state of Colorado's attorneys, that they were far more skeptical and their questions were far more biting against the state of Colorado than they were against President Trump's counsel. They had tough questions for both. But when I heard the questioning of Donald Trump's attorney, I thought, oh, yeah, its case seems a little weak. But then when they started questioning the state of Colorado, it was so much harsher. It was so much more pointed. And that was from all nine justices, including the more progressive justices and the more conservative justices. So if you just look at the way that the tone of the conversation, the tone of the colloquy at the Supreme Court, it seems that was much harsher against the state of Colorado for a few reasons, which we'll get to in just one second. The legal piece of this, and there's a, there's a whole lot of law that came up in this, but the one big one that we got to keep in mind for today is the 14th Amendment. Here's what the 14th Amendment says. We've gone over this in the program before, but this is the basis on which the state of Colorado disqualified Donald Trump from the ballot. The third section 
of the 14th Amendment is the one that factors here. It's the part that was passed after the Civil War to prevent former Confederates from holding office to the point where they might be able to overtake the U.S. government and drag it into an abyss, quite frankly. Section 3 of the 14th Amendment deals with disqualification from holding office. Here's what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment says. It says, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president or and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state, who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state, to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may, by a vote of two-thirds of each house, remove such disability. That's Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. What does that mean? A lot of legalese in there. If you kind of read it backwards, it says, first of all, this disqualification is not permanent. It's not ironclad. If Congress decides that you should be allowed to hold these offices, it can vote on that. And if you get a two-thirds majority of each house, then you can be deemed qualified again to hold these offices. The issue is engaging in insurrection or rebellion against the United States or giving aid or comfort to America's enemies. That came up during the questioning. For example, if a candidate, if, a, if another nation said, we hate America, we want America destroyed, and then you provided funding as president that you gave money to them to support them in their actions around the world, would that be disqualifying? So the aid or comfort to our enemies piece is part of it, but it didn't really factor heavily into today. It came up, but not that much. The larger issue is a few things. One, having taken an oath to support the Constitution of the United States. We talked about that here, that the Trump team argued that he didn't take an oath, that the text of the presidential oath is different than what's mentioned in Section 3, so Section 3 would not apply to him. The other issue is whether or not Section 3 applies to the president at all. If you look at the text of it, look at the people that it says that this applies to. People who are senators, representatives, electors, meaning members of the Electoral College, that hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or any state. Does this apply to the president? Well, there was a lot of debate at the Supreme Court today, and that has come up before, as to whether or not the presidency is included in this. Because it doesn't specifically say no person shall be the president if you've taken an oath and engaged in insurrection. It says you can't be a senator, you can't be a representative, you can't be in the electoral college. So it doesn't specifically say president. As for hold an office under the United States, that is a huge legal issue that came up before in terms of what it means to hold an office versus to be an officer of the United States. Both of those are there. And depending on the legal precedents that you read, and this has come up in lower courts, it came up in Colorado, and it also came up at the Supreme Court, the argument is that the presidency does not count as one of those offices because of the way the law has written and because of the way that it is carved out, that that would not be inclusive of the presidency. 
That's an argument that's been made in court. That argument did not fly for the state of Colorado. We'll see if it flies for the U.S. Supreme Court. But that's the text of the 14th Amendment. That's the underpinning of all of this, is whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment applies to Donald Trump in this situation. The case is Trump versus Anderson. This is the page from scotusblog.com, which is a site I very, very strongly recommend if you are ever just lost on one of these big cases. SCOTUS blog, SCOTUS Supreme Court of the United States. scotusblog.com covers these cases very well, including the docket number for the Supreme Court, the text of the previous court's ruling that was appealed to the Supreme Court, and every bit of the documentation leading up to all of this. This is a huge paper-intensive case. And a lot of people have weighed in on this case. I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy posted a friend of the court brief and, and filed, a, I think, a 40-page brief stating why he believed that Donald Trump should not be disqualified. There have been a number of briefs filed on both sides, not necessarily in support of either party, but just kind of opining on this, which is not unusual for the court. Here's the other piece of it, though, that I think went a little strangely, for me anyway, for my taste. A lot of what was asked at the Supreme Court today had to do with how we assess a person being disqualified for engaging in insurrection. This came up some during the arguments, and I'm going to look back at my little quick handy-dandy transcript I grabbed the the file and and I think I've got it handy. But one of the other things that came up had to do with just the United States Code, not the Constitution, but the statutes of the United States that are passed through Congress and whether or not they say that someone is disqualified. How do you know that you can disqualify somebody for this? Well, we know you can disqualify somebody for this because it's written in the law. Title 18 of the U.S. Code has an item within the code about insurrection and rebellion. It's section 2383 of Title 18, which is Crimes and Criminal Procedure of the United States Code. And it says so very plainly in the U.S. Code. Title 18, section 2383 says, whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort thereto, shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 10 years or both, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. (laughs) Ta-da! To me, layperson, non-lawyer, watching this from the outside, that kind of should have settled the question for me. If you engage in insurrection, you, you shall. And the law is very specific about the use of words like shall and will versus may or might or can. Shall means it's categorical. It's a done deal. If you engage in insurrection against the authority of the United States, you shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. Why the state of Colorado didn't just stick with that part of the law more solidly, I do not understand. Instead, what happened is that a lot of the justices ended up pulling Colorado into this legal argument that is not meaningless, right? It's not that there's no point to it, 
But they ended up in these legal rabbit holes about how to enforce this. And to be clear, to be fair, they're reasonable questions. One of the issues that the Supreme Court put to the state of Colorado was how to deal with this in a larger sense. Say that you want to disqualify someone for this. What's the procedure for that? Do they have the right to appeal? If it makes it to the Supreme Court, does the Supreme Court require a new review of the evidence? Or do they just accept the evidence that came from the other state? Does it have to be state by state? What happens if this turns into a free-for-all where every state says, well, I think you're disqualified. Well, I think you rebelled against the country. Well, I don't like the way that you think, act, speak, worship, you know, live, love, the way you voted, the, the policies you've espoused and enacted in the past. You should be disqualified. What then? What do you do if this becomes a free-for-all? That is a reasonable set of questions. And I think that that would be a more reasonable set of questions if this was not more clearly met, in my eye at least, as a legal bar for this situation. It's one thing to say, well, you were on some dark web social network with some encrypted conversations, we've uncovered them, and there were some transactions that were made to an organization that were made in crypto, and we found the blockchain records of these, and we can prove, right? We can prove what happened. That's one thing. And I think if that was the extent of it, I would totally get it. I would get it. This is not that. We all saw what happened on January 6th. What the president said on that date is a matter of public record. He stood at the ellipse, which is on the grounds of the White House, and told the crowd to march to the Capitol. He said, we fight like hell. If you don't fight, you're not going to have a country anymore. Those were his words. Rudy Giuliani referred to having trial by combat, and the crowd went wild. This is not a matter of secretive conversations and funny money transactions with crypto. This is a matter of broken glass and dead cops. We all saw what happened. And it happened less than a mile from where the Chief Justice of the United States was sitting today as he and his eight colleagues asked very reasonable but also somewhat hypothetical questions about other situations where this might happen. In this situation, it's pretty damn clear what happened and why that wasn't a stronger focus of Colorado's arguments, I wish I understood. But I think that that lack of focus may have handed Donald Trump a victory here. Now, with all that said, those are also reasonable questions because we live in a different political time where there are political processes that are being weaponized against people just because they have a different political view. So is it that the justices shouldn't have asked that question? They can ask whatever they want. And again, I do think the questions are reasonable. I think there is an issue now that we're in this situation where we might have to have some clearer processes. We might have to have Congress figure out what to do in this matter, particularly because of one of the cases that was brought up by Donald Trump's counsel. It is brought with regard to this handsome fella who was the Chief Justice of the United States, Salmon P. Chase. What a great name. Sa Salmon. Did you know that parents used to name their children 
Salmon. This man is named Salmon. Well, it's, it's Salmon. Salmon. But yeah, Salmon. So this case with Chief Justice Chase had to do with an opinion from 1869 known as Griffin's case. And to put it simply, the Washington Post kind of summarized it. It had to do with the disqualification clause of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, the one we just read. It was ratified in 1868. Remember, the Civil War ended in 1865. Chase ruled in 1869 that it would, and I'm quoting from the Washington Post now, it would be infeasible to determine what particular individuals are embraced by the disqualification clause without a legal process prescribed by Congress. And then the next year, Congress created that legislation. Fast forward to 2024, again from the Washington Post. There is a campaign to disqualify Trump from the presidency on the grounds that the January 6, 2021 Capitol riot was an insurrection. Congress has said that those convicted of insurrection are disqualified from office under the 14th Amendment, but the Justice Department hasn't even charged Trump with that crime. Trump's opponents argue that states can or must remove him from ballots anyway, as Colorado has done. Lincoln's chief justice, Justice Salmon P. Chase, is standing in the way. For the disqualification campaign to succeed, Trump's opponents must overcome Chase's seminal 1869 Griffin opinion. If Chase was a reliable authority on the 14th Amendment, then the activist end run around convicting Trump with insurrection is dubious at best. So the Chase case, this Griffin's case, came up quite a bit today as one of the precedents that they believed should be able to enjoin the state of Colorado, prevent the state of Colorado from booting Donald Trump off the ballot for these reasons. And it may succeed. They may be able to make a strong enough case on that grounds. Here's the thing, though. Griffin's case is not a Supreme Court precedent. It is a circuit court case. And one of the things that came up during the arguments today is whether or not and why the U.S. Supreme Court should set precedent based on a lower court's ruling. Doesn't mean they can't. But if they're going to, this case is not an apples-to-apples precedent. It is a lower court ruling. It's a circuit court ruling. But this is one of the cases that's been brought up because it happened around the time that insurrection was on people's minds. The state of Colorado, in its oral arguments, argued that many of the people who would have been covered by this had already been absolved, had already been granted some kind of amnesty by 1872. So the fact that Congress never wrote a strict set of rules on this is kind of immaterial because they already resolved the question through congressional means and through other means within a few decades of the Civil War ending. But this case is one of the ones that Donald Trump's legal team relied on significantly heavily to make their case that you have to have some kind of process in Congress. That also spoke to one of the arguments that justices began to put to the state of Colorado when it was Colorado's turn. And each side had, I believe it was 40 minutes, four zero minutes to make their case. Then you also heard from the state of Colorado's solicitor general, and then Donald Trump's attorneys had a few minutes for rebuttal and then court adjourned. But that's one of the things that came up quite a bit 
was if at the time people believed that you needed to have some kind of a congressional process to do this, then what should we do? How should we handle this? Does that just go away? Do we need to have some other kind of court process? What do we do? And the state of Colorado, as well as the Colorado Solicitor General, argued that the Constitution deals with that too. Because elections are a state function. If you look at the Electoral College Clause, at the Electors Clause in the Constitution, not the amendments, but the Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, Clauses 2 and 3, deal with the laws around electors. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2 says, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislature thereof, meaning the state legislature, may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. Let me pause on that for a second. So, this kind of does two things, one on each side of the case. One, it makes it clear that states have the power over electors. So that would speak in favor of Colorado having the power in its capacity as a state under the Constitution, under Article 2, to set those rules. And that the state of Colorado, therefore, has some responsibility to say, no, you can't be on the ballot. Sorry, we, we have to set these rules. The flip side of that is here where it says no senator or representative or person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States, meaning senators, representatives are not people holding an office under the United States, which goes back to that whole issue from the 14th Amendment about who counts as an officer of the United States. Is the president an officer of the United States? Well, our officers, people who are elected, or more to the point, more likely appointed. The president's not appointed. So that, if you believe Donald Trump's legal argument, helps his case that he's not covered by this. See how thorny this gets? This gets down to a matter of law, which was probably crystal clear back in 1865 or 1868 when this was passed. But now, because we're so far removed from it, and because, thank God, the United States Capitol doesn't get attacked all that often, and God willing, it won't again for an extraordinarily long time, if ever, we are so far removed from the legal thought processes of the day that it all kind of reopens itself back up and raises all of these questions about, well, what did they mean and who were they talking about and does this involve Donald Trump and, and, and how does this work and, and what, should we, what should our standard be and, and how, do we, how do we put this together and, and how do we enforce this? It's complicated. Now, part of the issue is not unheard of because this did have to be invoked before. I've mentioned before how much I love the Congressional Research Service. Those of you who do not know, it's at crsreports.congress.gov. It's a website full of reports prepared by congressional staff, not political staff, government staff, staff of the institution of Congress. Whenever a member of Congress says, hey, I need some research on such and such a topic, go look it up. They will put a report together and they publish the report. So if you want to become an instant expert on just about anything that's before Congress or any political issue, go to the Congressional Research Service and just search for it. 
I'm telling you, it's better than Google because this is reporting, this is research that Congress is using in a nonpartisan way, not even a bipartisan way, a nonpartisan way to make decisions. So this is just kind of factual basis. This is a report that came out in 2022, September 2022, explaining Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Goes through the disqualification clause, when it has been used, who it applies to, and on and on and on. And in this report, it also makes clear, and again, this was in 2022 that this came up. It makes clear that there's an argument that because the president is not covered explicitly by the provision, that the presidency is exempt. That is what Donald Trump is counting on. The impeachment clause, however, definitely applies to the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States. But that also suggests the president might not be a civil officer because it distinguishes him differently. So it's ambiguous. It's just inherently complex. Should it be? No. <laughs> I wish it wasn't quite so complex. But it also talks about times when this has come up. Congressional Research Service report says 14th Amendment, Section 3, does not necessarily require a criminal conviction. During the Reconstruction era, after the Civil War, prosecutors brought some civil actions in court to kick people out of office that were linked to the Confederacy. That case, Griffin's case that I told you about, had to do with a black man who was convicted of, I believe, murder? And he was suing because the judge was a Confederate, and he argued that he should not have his case heard by a judge who was associated with the Confederacy because he was disqualified. That's why that case was brought. The last time that Congress used Section 3 was back in 1919. It had to do with a man named Victor Berger, who was a socialist congressman accused of having supported Germany during the First World War. This was 1919, so it was the year after that war ended. Eventually, he was seated. The Supreme Court threw out his espionage conviction for judicial bias. And more recently, it's January 6th, so this doesn't come up often. And part of what the Supreme Court was grappling with was, this doesn't come up often. What do we do with this? How do we handle this? I'm going to get to some of your comments in just a second, but I do also want to show you just kind of how widespread this is. There are a lot of maps that are showing kind of where the litigation for all of this stands. One of them is from a website called Lawfare. And Lawfare has a map of all of the pending cases. I mean, look at how much of the country this involves of litigation under Section 3, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that would potentially disqualify Donald Trump from, or potentially other lawmakers or candidates too, from running. Got a bunch of cases, a bunch of states where cases are pending. There are cases pending in California, Alaska, New Mexico, Texas, South and North Carolina, Virginia, Wisconsin, New York, Vermont, and New Hampshire. You have some cases that have been, a lot of cases, that have been dismissed, either voluntarily or by the court, and also some cases that have been dismissed but are being appealed. Illinois just had a case where the state uh, elections board dismissed a claim from 
a resident that said Donald Trump should not be allowed to be on the ballot. And the state elections board said, no, we disagree. We will keep him on the ballot. And so now that is working its way through court. So that's an administrative challenge in that case. But you've got a lot of cases, state of Florida, there's a case, West Virginia, Massachusetts, Wyoming, Arizona, where those cases are being appealed. My state here in Nevada has already dismissed a case. Oregon has dismissed a case. Minnesota, Michigan, and on and on and on. So this is going to go on for a while. And the larger question of whether or not you can be on the ballot if you've committed an act of insurrection seems like it should be obvious. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of, well, okay, how does that work? Not just for Donald Trump, but for others, that's where it gets really, really messy. I suspect that if the state of Colorado loses this case, and again, that's what a lot of the pundits and prognosticators and legal experts suggest, but we don't know yet until the Supreme Court rules. We'll see. I think if they lose, they're going to lose it because of these issues. They're going to lose because of the details of how you enforce this in a larger sense. Never mind that Donald Trump has said he would be a dictator on day one. Never mind that Donald Trump said, we're going to fight like hell. We'll march to the Capitol. I'll be with you. Rudy Giuliani saying that thing about trial by combat, all of that stuff. Never mind that he kind of allowed Mike Pence to twist in the wind when there were mobs who were literally chanting, hang Mike Pence, hang Mike Pence. Never mind all of that. For the Supreme Court, the question that could doom this case is, what about the next guy who does this? I find that argument a little screwy, but again, I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not a Supreme Court scholar. But I think it also comes down to the line between disqualification and disenfranchisement. I understand the argument saying Colorado may be overstepping its bounds to determine what other people can vote for and how other people can vote. I get that. And I wouldn't want somebody making that decision on grounds that are frivolous, right? None of us would want that. America, one of the beauties of America is it's a country where you have the right to be wrong. And some people are just damn wrong about the candidates they want to pick. And we go back and go, okay, you shouldn't have been in office. Let's pick somebody else. But if you have, for example, a candidate who is clearly not allowed to be the president, and this came up too in terms of being old enough to run for president, being a natural born US citizen, is that disenfranchisement to tell somebody no? I mean, I hate to quote that song lyric, but you can't always get what you want. And some things are just not allowed under law. Amanda Gorman, amazing young woman, brilliant poet, a great thinker. Suppose the Democrats said, we want Amanda Gorman to be our nominee for president. She's 25 years old. Is the state of Colorado, if it says, sorry, Ms. Gorman, you can't be the president. We can't put you on the ballot because you're not qualified. Are they disenfranchising Coloradans by keeping Amanda Gorman off the ballot? Probably no. She's not qualified, period. Let's make it more complicated. What about Taylor Swift? We've been hearing a lot about Taylor Swift in Democratic politics. What if Taylor Swift wanted to run for the Democratic nomination for president? There's a problem. She's 34. She's not old enough to be president right now. But her birthday is in December. So by the time she is inaugurated, if she won, she would be old enough. She's a natural born citizen. She would be 35 when she takes office. What then? A little more complex, right? But that's the issue. Some of these cases are so much more of an edge case that it might feel like disenfranchisement to keep that person off the ballot. 
But others are just a matter of applying the law and the rules as they stand. And it's not a matter of disenfranchisement, but disqualification. And I think it disenfranchises voters even more to let them vote for a candidate who's not allowed to hold the office. That's actually wasting a vote. Instead of saying, you know what, I know you want this candidate, but they can't hold the office. So why don't you vote for someone who can? Why don't you vote for someone who is unquestionably, unequivocally, legally, constitutionally allowed to hold the job? I have no idea why the state of Colorado didn't just hew to that case. Because that point to me seems a whole lot clearer. Disenfranchisement, yeah, if you vote for someone who can't even hold the office, you want to write in Mickey Mouse at the bottom of the ballot, go right ahead, but you just burned your vote. How is it any different voting for someone who is not qualified or who actually committed an act of insurrection against the United States? If this is the legal standard, then why would you let someone who meets this legal standard siphon votes away from people who should be able to have their vote fully count by voting for a candidate who can be fully counted? I don't get that. I don't understand it. But then again, I'm not a lawyer. What do I know? Let's take a quick pause. I want to go back through the chat, read some of your comments. I can see that y'all have been chatting it up. Oh, Sid. Hello, Sid. Greetings from New Hampshire. Hello. Good to see you there. Thank you for joining the chat. Glad to see everybody talking about this in the chat. I'll get to that in just a minute. And beyond that, we will talk about the future of media. This was something that I was going to bring up tomorrow, but decided to table for today. So much is being made right now of whether or not the mainstream media is actually dead. And not just in that kind of like, oh, nobody likes them. Nobody wants to listen. Like there are actual business things happening that I think you need to know about if you are, I don't know if you're the kind of person who watches television at all, if you listen to radio at all, if that's your thing, but all of this is changing really, really fast. There are a couple changes you actually need to know about as a consumer and as just a citizen in this democracy. And also because I work in the so-called mainstream media or have I'm real concerned about the future of this industry. I think there are ways to save it, but they may not like what I would do to save it. I'll tell you more about that when we come back. This is The Nightlight. I'm Joshua Johnson. Great to be with you today. Please remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com for all the links for the podcast of the show to listen on demand. You can also find my Substack for more of my essays and articles. You can go to the merch store to buy some merch t-shirts and wine glasses and all kinds of other cool stuff to support The Nightlight. There's also an online tip jar. If you like the program, you can put a few dollars in there or contact me through the online form. You can do all of that online at nightlightjoshua.com. We are also, I'm working on getting the subscription feed working on Spotify. We have all of the full episodes, audio on demand minus ads or breaks, on Spotify, Apple, and your favorite podcast app for now that is usually a function that is just for paid subscribers. Normally, the episodes would have ads and breaks in them, but 
this week and last week, we've been making them available because it's relatively new to Spotify being posted in this way. So check it out. It's another way to take the show with you on the go, especially if you cannot be here to watch the broadcast in person. You will find all of those links at nightlightjoshua.com. Let me go back to some of your comments. I see Sid Caesar on YouTube. Hello, Sid. Sid writes, it did seem harsh. Would ask him for the state of Colorado questions. He'd start to answer and they would cut him off or another judge would start asking another question and cut off his answer to the first question. Or maybe that is what they usually do. I'm new to watching arguments. Sid, I appreciate you bringing that up, and thank you for sharing that. I think if you've never watched oral arguments before the Supreme Court, it can seem a little harsh. It can seem a little odd that they just don't let the person answer the question all the way. That is not unusual. It is normal. And because there is a finite amount of time, usually it's not, I mean, it's less than an an hour. I think they just had 40 minutes per side to do their oral arguments for each side, 10 minutes for the Colorado Solicitor General to speak on the matter and then another couple of minutes for Mr. Trump's attorney to give a final rebuttal, they did kind of move it along. You have nine people who are all trying to get their questions in and to get at least two rounds of questions in. There's one that's a little bit more open that generally goes in order of seniority. So it started with, you know, Clarence Thomas and then Samuel, and it kind of worked its way down from there, Thomas Alito and, and on from there. And then another round where the chief justice will go, Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Kagan, just and they would just and they would just go in order by seniority from most senior to least senior and asking questions. So they got to get a lot in in a very short period of time. That may be why it seems a little bit uh, terse and a little bit like they're rushing them through it because they do have limited time um, and they are pointed questions. That is also part of the point of the Supreme Court, not so much to let the person make their argument. They've already made their case in legal briefs. If you go to, and again, this this may be part of the process you're not familiar with, and it's totally fine. It's completely fine. If you go to, and I'll show you here, if I could type Supreme. There we go. (laughs) If you go to supremecourt.gov, once you learn how to spell it, once I learn how to spell it, and you go to, you can go to case documents, docket search. You can either search for the case here, or on the homepage, it'll show you what cases are coming up that day. Here's the audio of the case because they've just posted it. And they also posted some decisions today, which we figure that they would post some of them. Go to this page and it'll show you all the documents that are related to this case. Docket 23-719, Donald Trump versus Norma Anderson. That's the Colorado woman who brought this case. The lower court is the Supreme Court of Colorado. They made their decision on December 19th, and all the information is here. And so they've already gone through and made an enormous amount of legal argumentation in this matter. You also see all of the different uh, friend of the court documents. These amici curiae, that's what that means, friend of the court, who are basically offering their opinions on the case saying, here's what I think. Here's why I think this is important. Here's what I think you should consider. And it's just the whole timeline of the entire case. So between all of these documents, the overall legal argument has already been made. This is more to be able to suss out the fine points of what's happened and to give the the special, to give the attorneys an opportunity to return or to respond rather 
to the other side's argument in real time. That's more the point of the oral arguments. Also because it is court, it's to have a public proceeding for the hearing of this. And there is a courtroom full of people. So it wasn't just like the nine justices and the attorneys. It was a courtroom full of people. There were some moments where there were some jokes that were told or at least some funny things that happened and you can hear everybody laugh. So it's, it's not unusual and that's kind of just the way that the decorum of the court often runs like this. Sid Caesar also asked, does it seem like these cases are backward? If they tried him, meaning Trump, if they tried him for insurrection first and found guilty, then none of these other filings would be valid, right? Or rather, you wouldn't really need them. Possibly. I think that's possible. Um, I think, but then again, if, if they were tried for insurrection and convicted, he could also just appeal those convictions. So it wouldn't necessarily be final. And even that might end up being all the way up to the Supreme Court, depending on how far it went, depending on what the reasons were potentially for making the appeal, depending on whether or not the Trump team felt that they had another legal argument to make that would eclipse the arguments that were made in the lower court, it could still end up at the Supreme Court. It wouldn't necessarily abrogate all of this. Also, I'm just going to look really quickly to see where this is defined. Give me just one second. I'm just going to look up the term really quickly. Give me just a moment. I think also it's worth noting that like, these kinds of charges are really rare. And the other issue is, and I'm looking at, let's see, this is a federal criminal attorney. But one of the other issue is that insurrection, it's not like you can go into the US code and go, that's what an insurrection is. That's the other problem, is it's hard just to define what the hell it is. So did Donald Trump engage in an act of insurrection? What's an insurrection? That's part of the problem is that the statute says that, I mean, the statutes define treason, sedition. I'm, I'm looking up U.S. code. If I can get it to load for me, here we go. That same part of the code, say treason, for example. I remember I told you about section 2383, section 2381 deals with treason. Whoever owing allegiance to the United States levies war against them or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere is guilty of treason. And then it defines that treason is a capital crime, can be punishable by death or at least five years in prison and at least $10,000 and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. So in that case, it defines what treason is. If you owe allegiance to the United States and you commit an act of war against the United States or adhere to the enemies, give aid and comfort to the U.S., to the enemies of the United States in the U.S. or elsewhere, that's treason. Insurrection is not defined that way in the law. So for that reason alone, if you were accused, you might have a case. You might be able to go to the court and say, hey, hey, hey. I know they think that I committed an act of insurrection, but I did not. That's why when Donald Trump's attorneys, let me see if I can pull it up real quickly, said that he did not commit an act of insurrection, 
it's not immediately something that you can just throw out because there's no clear definition in the law. Should there be? Probably, but there isn't. Here it is. If you look at the legal brief that was filed by or on Donald Trump's behalf at the beginning of this process, here is the legal brief. Here's the document. If you look at this document that was filed on January 18th, under the table of contents, where it's making the argument, you can see the five points of the argument. Point number one, the president is not an officer of the United States. That goes back to that definition of who's covered under Section 3. Part two, President Trump did not engage in insurrection. That's part of the argument. So it is a bit more ambiguous, and it opens the door for this kind of litigation. If we want to close that door, we probably need a law. We probably need some kind of act of Congress to make that happen. But beyond that, I don't know how we, how we kind of prevent that. Oh, Nora, I see that you shared some of your experiences here. Nora writes on YouTube, Sid, I didn't listen this morning, but I have clerked and appeared. Oral arguments don't tell you much about what the court is thinking. Oral argument time is limited. So if the answer doesn't move promptly into something the justices haven't already gotten to, they reclaim their time, so to say. Yes, that's exactly it. And for the reasons that I said, yeah, they kind of, they kind of keep it moving. I also would caution against buying too much into some of the arguments that say the court has shown its hand, they're going to rule in Trump's favor. Of course, that's possible. It may be very possible that what we heard in the oral arguments today is going to be reflected in the opinion. It's also possible it won't. The court does not always go the way that we think, and the court likes to rule unanimously or nearly unanimously. So, If anything leans in the direction of Donald Trump's attorneys winning, it's that justices across the board had strong questions for Colorado's side. The issue is whether Colorado answered them effectively. That's the big question. Joseph, I see your comment on YouTube. Joseph wrote, there will definitely be a more solid definition after all these cases are settled and done. Maybe. I hope so. I certainly hope so. But... What if Donald Trump prevails in this case and he wins the presidency and Republicans take the Senate? So then you would have a Republican House, potentially, Republican Senate, and a Republican in the White House. They're probably not going to be eager to talk about this at all. So I don't know if this is actually going to make it get resolved sooner. It might actually make it take longer to resolve, or it might never get resolved, at least not unless there is another such attack, unless there is another such insurrection. It'd be nice if we had a clearer definition, but I guess when people wrote this, they hoped that we would never need a clearer definition, right? I guess they hoped that we would just be able to kind of keep it moving and not have to deal with this sort of thing again. That hope may have been naive because here we are, and there's always going to be somebody who says, no, I don't want to follow the rules. I'm going to be a sore loser. Give it to me. It's mine. It should have been mine all along. And that's the core of the issue here is whether or not people who disagree with the outcome of the election have the latitude to attack the country and get away with it. So far, the courts have said no. But then do you have the latitude to allegedly incite that attack and still be the president? We've never had to answer that question. Will we answer it now? I really hope so. But maybe not.
Let's take another break. Let's take another break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the press. It's a weird time to be doing journalism. It's a hard time to be doing this work. And there's a reason why you and I are talking here instead of on your TV box. It's because the industry is changing. Those changes also got me onto your TV box. Let's be clear. So it's not all bad, but there have been a number of things going on in journalism, the mainstream media, the press, whatever you want to call it, that I think for as much as we don't necessarily say we like journalism or the media or the mainstream media are bigger than just how you feel about the press and whether they're lying to us or telling us the truth or holding things back. I get all of that, but there's more going on there that I think should be concerning for everyone, particularly if you like saving money on your cable bill. Mm, now I've got your attention, don't I? I'll explain what's going on when we come back. Welcome back. Thank you for sticking around. Glad to have you all with me on the stream stream on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitch. For those of you who are watching over on X, the site formerly known as Twitter, come join us over on YouTube. We are at Nightlight Joshua, where there is a lovely community of people waiting to say hello. You should say hello as well if you're on the chat. If you haven't said hello on the chat before, just give us a wave. Say hi. Tell me where you're watching from, what part of the country, what part of the world you're viewing from. Love to have you part of the conversation. If you have questions, thoughts, insights, feel free to drop them in. We keep it smart and civil here and sometimes silly. We're, we can be a pretty silly bunch, but welcome. Glad to have you with us today. I want to talk about something that almost no one wants to talk about. And I come into this knowing it's a very unpopular topic. And I get that. And I know, I know, I know. You don't have to tell me. I already know. One of the things that made my life as a journalist so weird was the time that I spent on NPR in Washington. I was the host of a show called 1A, which was based at WAMU Public Radio in Washington and distributed by NPR. So I was on NPR, but I didn't work for the mothership. This was during the time when Donald Trump was telling the public that the press was the enemy of the people. And that made the work of being a journalist really scary and very nerve-wracking. Even more so because I was on a show that was a new program that was also a hit. And that people had a very acute interest in what was going on around the country when I was the host of 1A. 1A, by the way, was named for the First Amendment. That's where the name came from. So when I was hosting 1A, a lot of people would literally stop me on the street and say, I love you. I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and it's so important at a time like this, and I'm so worried about what's happening in the country, and I appreciate the conversations you're leading and the way that people can just come on the program and talk, and it's an oasis of sanity in the middle of everything that's going on, and please keep doing what you're doing, and I'm so glad that you're here, and I love you so much, and I'm, I'm a huge supporter, and I thank you, thank you, thank you. And I'm like, you're welcome. And they want to keep walking, and it happened all the time. It happened a lot because I think much like in other times of crisis, whether you want to say Watergate or whatever, people kind of felt like they needed to have these institutional backstops that protected our democracy. 
and spoke to the needs that we had collectively to just be able to see what the hell is going on in the country and to be able to talk about it in ways that didn't increasingly tear us apart. This is a very different time. That day feels like it is over. Over forever? I hope not, but it's looking bad. It is hard to go independent because I lost my job at NBC. I went from NPR to NBC and then NBC let me go. And to not really be able to contemplate going back, not because I'm unhirable, I would like someone to hire me, but because I don't know what I'm being hired back into. Like what, what is the industry that you return to? Tech is going through this right now. Hollywood is going through this right now. Finance is going through this. Wall Street's going through this right now with the rise of AI. A lot of this is connected to the rise of tech, but with the rise of AI, what does it mean to be a programmer in Silicon Valley? Chat GPT can write code. What does it mean to be a long haul driver or a taxi driver? Cars can drive themselves now. We're not far off from them being able to do it on a much larger scale. Why do you need people who advise you on trades on the stock market when an algorithm can do it as well and when trading has been digital for years? You don't have to trade at the speed of a person waving a, you know, waving a piece of paper angrily on the floor of the stock exchange when a computer can just do it for you instantaneously. Why do you need them? So tech is upending everything in a lot of ways. And when you look at the combination of the impact of tech and our cultural shifts, which are largely fomented by social media, which is a form of tech, it looks a little bleak. And it's a weird time to be in the business. Depending on who you ask, it's a terrible time to be in the business. And I think that we have to talk about this. Now, I want to preface this. I'm not an apologist for the so-called mainstream media. A lot of my former colleagues in the media do a lot of dumb stuff and a lot of stuff that I think is just so unproductive, unhelpful that they need to stop doing. We've talked about all that on this show. We'll talk about it further in the future, but I am not an apologist for the press. I think we need to do better than we are doing, than we are doing and we're not, and that is a huge part of what's wrong. I'll get to that. I am also not suggesting that the media don't have their biases. Everyone has biases. I have mine, you have yours. Biases are real. And I think a smarter way forward, I've talked about this on this show too, is to have a healthier, more candid conversation about the points of view we bring to our work instead of acting like we can be some magical androids who just don't feel anything. We're not. And I think it's about time we just had an honest conversation. doesn't mean that everyone has to declare their partisan points of view. The Associated Press should remain what it is, I think, and just like give me a just the facts account. But to act like we don't feel things about the stories we tell is just asinine and it's a lie. So it's not that I think that we shouldn't have that conversation or that that conversation is unworthy. This is about the fact that an industry is actively melting down right now, and it's happening really fast. And it's going to affect you and me both economically and democratically, small d democratically, in ways that are coming very, very imminently. I'm not saying this to scare you. I'm saying it to prepare you. And also because some of the ways this has happened are a little nutty. Let me open one more link because I just remembered another goofy thing 
that happened not too long ago that I almost forgot to include, but it's, it's, it's so nuts. It's absolutely insane. The way that some of these things have, have happened, it's a little crazy. We have a lot of images of the big wigs, the big names that run some of these companies. Um, if you've watched 30 Rock, you've got your picture of Alec Baldwin and him as the boss of NBC when it was run by a company called Cable Town or whatever. Anna Winter is one of them, the doyenne of Vogue magazine, long time. She recently had to go to the offices of a music publication called Pitchfork, which has been a tastemaker in the industry for a long time, and tell people they were getting laid off. Uh, by some accounts, according to one writer who spoke to Variety magazine, Anna Wintour kept her trademark sunglasses on the entire time as she was telling people at Pitchfork that they were getting laid off. This is probably not the best look for people who are losing their jobs, but because... Condé Nast, which also owns Vogue, decided to blend Pitchfork into GQ rather than leave it as a standalone, it was, it was a little telling. One person wrote on the site formerly known as Twitter, quote, the indecency we've seen from upper management this week is appalling, unquote. So on one hand, you can just kind of relate to people who are getting laid off in a sort of thoughtless and kind of a, a heartless way way after doing work that at times can be very, very difficult. It's been a really rough year or so, year or two for the industry. By one account on CNN, just last year, nearly 2,700 people who work in news lost their jobs. 2,700 people across various news outlets. That's the most people since COVID basically caused many, many jobs across many sectors to be lost. One of the highest profile cases of this lately has been at the Los Angeles Times. Julia Turner, who was an executive VP at the Times, just resigned her role. She is one of a number of people at the LA Times, which again, Los Angeles, second largest city in the country, a very large paper, that have been leaving their jobs, including the former head of the LA Times, Kevin Merida, who left a few weeks ago. The owner of the paper is a guy named Dr. Patrick Soon-Chiong, who is a tech entrepreneur, kind of a biotech entrepreneur, who bought the paper a few years ago and has been trying to make it profitable, sustainable. A lot of companies have been making very, very deep cuts in the organizations that they now own to try to get them to some kind of sustainability in the wake of people not reading a paper on paper or changing their subscriptions and so on. And I think he's just kind of discovering that, oh, this isn't as hard as we thought it was. And so he's been, they've been making some very deep layoffs. And rather than having to be the one to go through and chop off the heads of their staff, a lot of these leaders are like, I'm out, I gotta go. And so quite a few people, including the top editor, the executive editor, have left the LA Times. This has led to some very deep, what are called news deserts. By one analysis from Northwestern University, which has one of the foremost journalism schools in the country, more than half of counties in the U.S. have little or no access to local news. I'm not talking about inside the beltway, partisan, political, yakety-yak. I'm talking about what happened at your city hall or with your school board or the Friday night lights at your high school football field. This is what's happening where you are. 
potholes getting paved, bake sales happening at church fellowship halls, local crime, local issues, local business, local. That your communities are dramatically less likely to know what's happening in their own backyards than they have been in an extremely long time. More than half have little or no access to local news. And by Medill's analysis, more than 7% of counties are at a substantial risk of losing local news. How often are we talking? Two and a half, on average, two and a half newspapers per week that are closing across the country. Two to three papers every single week all over America. Now, part of that is odd because you may not have thought, oh, are there that many newspapers in the country? Oh, yes. And a lot of them are dying. Part of it is because they haven't really adapted to the digital changes that are happening around them. Granted. Part of it's also because Silicon Valley isn't making it easy for them to adapt. I mean, it would be nice, for example, I showed you this yesterday. Go back to Facebook, for example. It'd be nice if you were able to, if you're a local station trying to put something somewhere, to be able to put what you do in the Facebook video page. Where does it go? Can't go in shows. You can't tag it and explore because there's no heading for news. They made it very clear they don't want us. And because sites like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit have become so central in terms of the way that we surface news, if they don't want you to be seen, you disappear. You vanish. How can you get noticed if the platforms that have eclipsed you in terms of setting the conversation don't want to see you? What do you do then? Some news organizations are finding a way, but it's, it's not what it was. It's a lot, lot, lot harder than it was. What is going on? What are some of the factors behind this? Jay Rosen, who's a professor at NYU who teaches journalism, put a thread out uh, about a week ago describing this. I don't always agree with Jay Rosen's assessments, but I think some of the factors that he put out in his thread are significant, and I think they make a lot of sense. One of the issues, I told you about Patrick Soon Cheong, Rich Guy Rescue, rarely works. I agree with Professor Rosen, typically underestimates how hard it is to find money in news and keep the quality reasonably high. News costs money. These professionals who do it, they need to be paid a decent salary and it costs money. Also, here's a big one, and you and I are a big part of this. The ad industry doesn't need the news industry when there are so many other ways to purchase attention and so many better ways to target users. This is an extension of what Craigslist did. But even Craig Newmark, the Craig behind Craigslist, has acknowledged, yeah, I think I broke this. And so he's been spending a lot of money to try to fix what he broke. The City University of New York's journalism school is called the Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. He's putting a lot of money into fixing what Craigslist broke. A lot of other companies are not, and when you can watch me on social media and they can just serve you ads that way, why do you need to put an ad in the paper? Why put an ad on television? The case for it is getting worse and worse. Further than that, I think Professor Rosen's right in saying the internet is rewiring not only the media sector as with streaming, but the public itself, which is breaking up or being broken into multiple, some say parallel realities. As you can tell from my attempt to describe it, we do not have a good language for this shift. I've got language for it. They're called rabbit holes, <laughs> silos. 
were being broken up into this. And look, I don't know how we would have avoided this. No one's ever encountered anything like social media before. But it's broken us into these very narrow, discrete channels that make it harder to make the case for mass media in general. Just the term, mass media, mass communications, sounds like something you would hear on an old-timey radio that you had to turn on and then tune with a dial. You remember when you used to tune the radio and go, the local traffic on the, with a radio that did that? It sounds old-timey from those days. And some of you won't even rec. I know some of you <laughs> heard me through that. Don't even recognize the sound I was making. Did you know you had to dial a radio and you could hear every station along the way? That's a relic of that time. And we don't have that as much anymore. When you just tell your remote control to play whatever channel you want, you don't even encounter things to the left and the right on the dial, let alone politically. Hard to do. And there are no clear answers. I also think that Professor Rosen is right in one of the other points on his thread. He says, journalists have to take it upon themselves to treat sustainability as their problem. But this is not what they signed up for. They signed up to do great stories. Amen to that. I can attest. This is not what I envisioned. This I enjoy. The back and forth with you, that's fun. But trying to figure out what state to incorporate my LLC in, Nevada in this case, because here I am in Las Vegas, and figuring out what the most sustainable way is to manage my time so that I can do the SEO research to figure out what words to put in an Instagram post of the clip that I pulled of the show that I did to get someone who's not watching to watch or not listening to subscribe on Spotify and then understanding the analytics that go behind, knowing how many listeners I have to have on what platforms before I can monetize it and make subscriptions and then figuring out how to link all of those things together and then... I mean, shoot me in the head. It's what? <laughs> and then sometime at like 10 o'clock at night, I go, oh, crap. I haven't figured out what tomorrow's show is. Fuck. Like, that's my day. This is burnout in the making. Everyone's burning out. So it's hard to see how this is not a crisis, not even for the industry, but for us all. Now, I want to address those who are saying, play me the world's tiniest violin, F the mainstream media, I don't care what happens to them, let them all burn down. Okay, cool. But I think there are a few things you should consider. Ever heard a guy named Jeffrey Epstein? You know, the one who was luring young women into a form of sex trafficking in his wealthy enclaves and Palm Beach and elsewhere and who had the benefit of a U.S. attorney named Alexander Acosta, who didn't really prosecute him as aggressively as he should have. Jeffrey Epstein is dead now, uh, died in prison under, I guess, mysterious circumstances. But that story, when it was blown open, everyone was universally united in hating that creep for what he did and demanding justice for Jeffrey Epstein. No one liked what he did, and we're all grateful that he finally got brought down. We've also learned more about other famous people, notable names, that are connected to Jeffrey Epstein in recent document releases. Do you know how Jeffrey Epstein got surfaced, how he got caught in the first place? 
It was the result of a years-long investigative effort by the Miami Herald, my old paper. Julie Brown, who is an investigative reporter, spent years uncovering that case. And the documents that we just got, the ones that came out this year, that was the result of a five-year legal fight. Five years. People don't release these documents out of the goodness of their hearts. They didn't get declassified or released because someone in government said, you know what? I think that people have a right to know. No. It's because little old ladies who live down in South Florida have been subscribing to the Miami Herald since the days that John S. and James L. Knight owned it, since the day that Alva Chapman was the editor, and they've just been there for decades, building up this institution so that at the moment that a Jeffrey Epstein needed to be brought down, the Miami Herald was ready. And having worked for the Miami Herald very early in my career, I can tell you, they were going to get that guy. They are amazing investigative reporters, and they don't blink. So you needed someone like Julie Brown. You need people like David Ovalle, who covers crime, or Jay Weaver, who covers the federal courts. You need people whose job it is to just be dogged and just say, I'm not going away. I'm going to dig this story up until it surfaces. I'm not going away. Who at Facebook is going to do that for you? Which social network do you trust to do that kind of work? You think Elon's on your side? Doesn't work that way. So we may be about to destroy institutions that are doing work that needs doing without knowing they're doing it. There was a city in Southern California named Bell, California, where the city manager, a man named Robert Rizzo, was being paid more than a million dollars a year. This is a little bitty city of like 400 people that had just been incorporated back in 2005 to become a charter city. Sure enough, they finally got busted for a corruption scandal that allowed these people to make a whole bunch of money in some really screwy ways. Do you know who exposed Bell? who blew the lid off of that? I'll give you a hint. We've mentioned them today. Their name just came up. The Los Angeles Times. A reporter from the LA Times broke that story through some other shoe leather reporting he was doing. His name is Ruben Vives. And years ago, when he was a reporter for the LA Times, he was covering another matter, city council meeting, or covering city government, excuse me as he was covering something at a neighboring city that was also, like Bell, California, a very poor city. How is it that a city that is strapped for cash, trying to make its way, able to pay the city manager, who's basically the chief administrator of the city, $1.5 million in annual compensation? They couldn't. But the city leaders made a deal among themselves, very quietly, to pay themselves a stupid amount of money. And the LA Times caught them, and these people ended up getting their asses handed to them, including going to jail. Who else is going to do that for you if not the reporters who were in the middle of it? We're getting ready to lose something that is super duper valuable that nobody wants to defend. How is that possible? What do we do for that? It's also going to take other forms. And I think some of them are going to be more subtle, but they're showing up all the time. Some of you have heard my 
complain about Shannon Sharp and the way that he handled his interview with Cat Williams. There's another high-profile interview that I got to go watch today between him and the comedian Monique, who calls out, among other people, Tyler Perry and Oprah Winfrey, and she is not holding back. But part of it also has to do with just the realm of sports in general. There's a piece in The Atlantic about how sports journalists are thinning out. So the kinds of people who investigate things like sports gambling, which is super relevant right now because the Super Bowl is in Las Vegas, brain injury among NFL athletes and the league's inability to protect players until they were exposed for doing that, sexual harassment and sexual abuse among coaches to players, whether it's what happened at Penn State under Joe Paterno or with Larry Nasser, who was one of the doctors for the US Olympic team. All of these things get exposed because some reporter is able to say, we know there's a lot of glitter and luster on the game, but what's underneath it? Does it rub off? Oh my God, it rubs off. And what's underneath it? Oh my God. And they're able to do the investigating. Who at Instagram is gonna do that work for you? Which private hedge fund is eager to see that work done? It doesn't have to be these media outlets, but if not them, who? Who's gonna do the work? Does it just not need to get done? Do we believe America is a less corrupt country now than it was before? Do we really believe that America is less in need of accountability now? That it's so much simpler now than it was in the past? Or is it more complex because of the amount of technology? And because our digital footprints can be more easily erased. I mean, you can, we just went through a whole scandal where Taylor Swift was AI deep faked with adult videos on X. Do we really believe the world is a more trustworthy place now than it was before? Who's going to do the work? I would hope it would be people like me who are qualified, who know what we're doing. But if not us, then who? And who's going to fight for it? Who's going to demand it? Will you? Will I? Will anyone listen? There's a little more to this when we come back. I do think that there are some lessons to be learned. And I don't think all of the wounds are externally inflicted. Some of them were, and they're just not wounds that we're working to really heal for ourselves as an industry. We are also continuing to shoot ourselves in the foot over and over, and it makes me absolutely crazy. But I do think there are some lessons in the past, and I think there's reason for hope. I don't think we're doomed. Frankly, I think that some of the new efforts that are coming online could be a really good thing. And I don't think that we have to look at this immense upheaval and say, oh, well, everything's screwed. The industry's falling apart. History has a way of proving that from those ashes rise something new. We've had it happen more than once, including with one of America's favorite TV shows. It's a show I bet you watch most evenings. I'll tell you about that and get to your comments when we come back. Welcome back. Let's continue our conversation about the future of the news and the mainstream media. Let me get to a few of your comments before I move on. Sarah wrote on YouTube, our local NPR station is building up a newsroom to fill in this local news gap. I get their email every morning. 
Yay. Glad to hear that. A lot of NPR stations are doing, I mean, that's part of what I was doing on NPR in Miami and in San Francisco before I got to the network. But yeah, that's, that's kind of the gap that needs to be filled. That gets to something that was written by Perry Bacon Jr. in the Washington Post, who says that, quite frankly, journalism is not a money-making venture anymore, and it should just focus on its mission and just kind of assume a different public role instead of trying to be a business per se. Here's part of what Perry Bacon writes in his piece as it relates to public media. He writes... The journalism industry itself and the public need to fully embrace a shifted landscape. The era when many news outlets were also successful businesses is over and might never return. Foundations, wealthy individuals, average Americans, and even local and state governments, much more than in the past, are being asked to subsidize news outlets through subscriptions or donations. Public radio stations holding fundraising drives used to be an anomaly in an industry largely funded by advertising. But in the future, it is likely that lots of news organizations will essentially be charities, asking rich people, and also you, to help them provide a critical service that the market won't support. So what kind of journalism should Americans be willing to fund? Three kinds in particular. Government and policy news, particularly at the local and state levels. Watchdog journalism that closely scrutinizes powerful individuals, companies, and political leaders. And cultural coverage, from important books and movies to faith and spirituality. And he goes on to write, Why those things? They capture the major crises in America, the anti-democratic drift in the Republican Party, the growing, often unchecked power of corporations and the wealthy, the rampant homelessness, drug addiction, declining life expectancy, and other problems affecting America's less fortunate, the increasing effects of climate change, and a decline in connection and community as Americans navigate a world full of social media but lacking religious congregations and other community-based groups, unquote. That's part of what Perry Bacon Jr. wrote in the Washington Post. I agree in part and totally disagree in part. I do agree that we should be willing to fund journalism, for sure. Clearly, because that's part of my business model, too. I do agree that we should be funding government and policy news, particularly at the local and state level. Watchdog journalism, yes. Cultural coverage, yes. Are there crises in America in terms of our ability to connect with and commune with one another? Of course, absolutely. I disagree, however, with the idea, and I'm not sure why he makes this case because he doesn't really substantiate it, that news outlets can't be successful businesses anymore. If history teaches us anything, it's that the minute you tell somebody, oh, this can't work, they figure out a way to make it work. That's why 60 Minutes is such a powerful program. 60 Minutes emerged at a time when news was never expected to make money. And 60 Minutes became the most watched show on television and the, one of the most profitable in news. CNN continues to be one of the most profitable networks that does news. Now you have a lot of channels that are, but it wasn't always that way. CNN, for all of its issues, still makes a lot of money among international news channels. So the idea that it can't be profitable, that it can't be a real business, that it has to be kind of patted on the head like a charity, seems a little silly. I also don't like the implication that public radio is a charity. That's a damn lie. I find it highly offensive, highly as a professional journalist who spent most of my 20 years in journalism, 
in public media to be treated like a charity case. Screw you. You put me on the ground with a story, I will run circles around your ass every single day and twice on Sunday. Don't you dare look down your nose at me and look at my journalism as an act of kindness. This is work. We are professionals. And the idea that this guy thinks that just because he's working for Jeff Bezos that he's a journalist with a capital J shows that there's a problem in the way that we all view this work. We're not doing this to be nice. I do this to pay my rent. This is not charity. And if you are funding this work because you think that these are just nice people who are doing a kind of Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, let's put on a show, then you are doing it for the wrong reasons. We are dead serious about this work and we're the best there is. And if you put money in our pockets, put money on our pockets because you believe we're the best around, not because you believe that we deserve some mercy or some pity or some charity, alms for the poor. Fuck out of here. I also disagree with his assessment about what kinds of journalism to fund. I think these should be funded, government, policy, watchdog journalism, cultural coverage, sure. But you know what kind of news everyone needs in the morning? Traffic and weather together on the ones. There's just basic information that people need. And people tune in for that every morning. In many markets, the most watched station is the Fox station because they don't have a national network program and they always do local. They do traffic, weather, local, traffic, weather, local, traffic, weather, local. People want that information. And so the idea that it should just be the kind of, you know, Brussels sprouts and broccoli of journalism is missing an opportunity to do news that is actually, dare I say, fun to watch, read and listen to, that we actually want to hear, not just feel like we need to hear. This is such a failure of imagination. And I think that's the actual problem that I have with where we are in this business. We lack the imagination to envision a better kind of journalism that actually makes you like to consume what we do. Not just feel like you have to, but like you want to. I hope part of the reason that you watch and listen to this program is because you enjoy the connection with me not just the work that I'm doing, but me, that you and I connect in some way that's meaningful and that's unique and that you would miss if it was gone. I know I miss it. I know I would miss it if it was gone. And I think it's that human relationship that's where we're actually failing. This argument that Perry Bacon is making is kind of a proxy of the is democracy dead argument. And I think that's a different conversation than are we doing something worth reading? Are we making something worth hearing or watching? Are we making something that we would seek out if it wasn't at hand? Do people prefer it or will they go out of their way for it? Is the product good enough? And if all you can do is kind of rely on the broccoli and Brussels sprouts of the important and hard work of democracy as a pillar of the American dream, then you have failed already. And it's a failure of imagination, not a failure of industry. And I think his argument exemplifies that. And it makes me worry that no one's working hard enough to reinvent the product and give people something to be impressed by. What are we doing that impresses you? What was the last piece of journalism you consumed that made you go, wow, or okay? 
Go on, I'll wait. <laughs> That's the problem. Now, what was the last movie you saw that made you go, wow? I bet that's easier to think of. That's the point. That's the problem. We're trying to survive, but we're not trying to impress. We're not trying to super serve you. We're not trying to connect with you and enthrall you the way we should if we want to make it. That's the failure. That's what we're not doing. And if we don't do that, we deserve to be abandoned. You should walk away. Tenunda, hello, good to see you in the chat. Tenunda writes, and now the quote-unquote local TV news are all owned by Sinclair and run the same stories that have zero local connection. I hear you on that. Sinclair has been a very controversial presence for its conservative leanings in the last few months. One of the stations here in Las Vegas, Channel 3, is owned by Sinclair. Um, I think it is the weakest of the stations in their local coverage, and that's saying a lot, considering the local coverage in Las Vegas is not terribly strong. But more than that, I don't know if you heard, but the executive chairman of Sinclair just bought the Baltimore Sun newspaper in Baltimore, Maryland. And he is not shy about his political background. He is an active contributor to a number of conservative causes. He bought the Baltimore Sun from a hedge fund called Alden Global Capital, which owns a lot of papers across the country and has run a lot of papers really into the ground, strip mined them basically for their wealth and is kind of leaving them to languish. It's not a pretty picture. And a lot of the people at the Baltimore Sun are very concerned about what it means for their future, not only for the economics of the paper, but also for the politics of the paper's coverage, its editorial board, and so on. So the Sinclair piece is also a larger issue. Having said that, I also know a guy, he's one of the anchors here in town, he used to work for a Sinclair station, and he has very good things to say about it, just as a place to work. He dealt with some people who have been problematic at other stations that were giving him a hard time, but he didn't actually hate the company and the work that he did. So depending on who you work for, if you're just a general assignment reporter, you may not really encounter a lot of the political stuff from the ownership, or you may encounter a ton of it, depending on what you do. Everyone's situation, everyone's kind of news environment is going to be a little bit different, and everyone's experience is going to be a little different. This too is my name wrote on YouTube. Would you consider streaming like you're doing now, mainstream? Mainstream, mainstream streaming, mainstreaming? That's a good question. I would not consider it mainstream in the sense that I'm not doing the kind of coverage that is on par with a mainstream outlet. I can't really compete with those outlets right now. I do think that it is more popular, but I don't think that it is necessarily mainstream in the structure of the program in the goals of the program, in the nature of my perspective, in addition to reporting, in addition to tone, in addition to style, I'm not even wearing a suit, right? I'm wearing a, an Under Armour shirt and just kind of in my, the, my second bedroom with a, a monitor. But during COVID, a lot of the people who did the news had a hookup quite like this, where they were just in another room. So in that way, maybe it is a little bit more technologically in the mainstream or whatever. But also it's not mainstream because I own this. This is my company. And in a mainstream outlet, you are kind of 
a member of a larger news army. You kind of agree to be subsumed into that and accept that you will operate by the policies of another organization. I get to set policy on my own. If I want to quit, I could quit in the middle of this sentence. I could, boop, I could cut the stream right now and never come back. Can't do that if you work for CBS. So it's not mainstream in that way. I don't think that makes it necessarily better or worse. It just makes it different. There are some mainstream outlets that are great. NPR is mainstream, and I love NPR. And there are some outlets that are not mainstream that I worry about very significantly. Uh, For example, Joe Rogan. He's on a major platform, Spotify. He is the number one or two podcast in the country almost all the time now. But he's not mainstream. He's just popular. And I think his lack of an allegiance to the truth, to accountability, makes him very not mainstream. I hope that we never mainstream that kind of thing, that we never consider it in the main line of public discourse because he doesn't take sufficient responsibility for the truth being always accounted for, not perfection, but accountability in what he says and in what his guests are allowed to say. Same thing with Shannon Sharp. I was very concerned with the way he handled the Cat Williams interview, and I I'm pretty sure it's going to be a continuing problem with the Monique interview, but I haven't watched that yet because he shirks the responsibility of handling that kind of a space, that kind of accountability in his space. I'm not cool with that. So maybe insofar as I'm very dogged about accountability and truth and integrity and owning what I say, maybe that makes me more mainstream. But, and if that's the case, then I'll accept that. I'll accept that. But, you know. Sid Caesar wrote on YouTube, in our area, we have a woman that about a decade ago started a local news site for two towns over. She busts her buns, and this year she started a sister site to cover news in our town. Good for her. Good for her. It's hard to do. It is a it is a bun-busting activity on a good day. And my days, my weeks are usually 10 to 13 hours a day, five to six days a week, pretty consistently, because it takes a lot to to do this. I'm working on making it simpler. I'm working on making it much simpler, but not an easy task, but good for her. Holly wrote on YouTube, my local public media outlet is building a huge new media center after 50 years in the basement of the Modern Languages building at the university. As a sustaining member, I am rooting for them. Good for them. That is one of the things that my old station, WAMU, did years before I got there. They were in a side floor of... You know, a lot of these public stations were that way. WAMU was like one floor of a... I, I forget what building it was on campus. But they moved off of that and then got their own tower, their own building kind of uh, further away from the campus. And, and it allowed them to expand. WNYC in New York used to be the city-owned radio station owned by the city of New York. And then eventually they kind of voted on and and won their emancipation, became an independent nonprofit, and now they kind of grew like a weed. So it's a very common story that a lot of stations started off as just this little kind of KPCC Los Angeles was owned by Pasadena City College. That's the PCC. And then they're still licensed to them, but then we're free to kind of grow and do other things. And that's when they expanded. I think a lot of stations very rightly understood that if all they do is play classical music and then do a little bit of news here and there, they're never going to survive, let alone grow. My old station KQED, Joanne Wallace, who was its program director for a long time, did the audacious move 
of dropping classical music and going all in on news and public affairs. They thought she was crazy at the time. Who's crazy now, right? So they've actually had a good track record of being able to make those kinds of changes and do those kinds of innovations, which is why I have some hope for where this is going. There are a lot of nonprofits who are making some pretty audacious moves, especially because now there's a new initiative that a bunch of charitable organizations put together, they revealed it last September, that will pump $500 million into local news, five, a half billion dollars. It's called Press Forward. It's a massive initiative that's being supported by a bunch of foundations. The Archwell Foundation, which is Harry and Meghan's foundation, the Carnegie Corporation, basically all the ones you've heard of if you listen to the support for NPR comes from. Those groups, the Ford Foundation, Henry Luce Foundation, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, the Knight Foundation, and on and on and on. The McKnight Foundation, Outrider, Robert Wood Johnson, Alfred P. Sloan, all the big ones that you know. The Lenfest Institute for Journalism, which owns the Philadelphia Inquirer. It is a nonprofit now. So they are going to put a bunch of money into local news around the country. Remember, we mentioned that tremendous growth in these local news deserts. I wish they would work a little harder on hacking national news. This is more specifically for local. Maybe some of the money will go to national. But that's one of my concerns is I love doing local, but I also really worry about what happens to us on a national basis, especially because when we think of national news, we usually just think of politics and we think of, well, are you biased on the left or biased on the right? There's so much more to the national conversation than just politics. I try to get beyond politics as much as I can on this program. And I think we need to continue to build that out. I think we need to continue to, to push for that. Oh, I'm sorry. This too is my name. I didn't get to the second part of your comment. I'm sorry. I, I should have read them back to back. Let me go back to yours and, and see if I fully answered it. I'm sorry. The way it showed up in my chat feed, they didn't align. You asked, would you consider streaming like you're doing now mainstream? And now I see the rest of your comment, which says, the reason I ask is twofold. One, most of the news I consume are from streaming channels or online articles. And two, more corporate news are inviting them into their group discussions on broadcast. Gotcha. Sorry I didn't answer the second part of that. I just didn't see it when I looked the first time. It sounds like you're also asking about the mainstreaming of news, which I get. And I think maybe to an extent you can be sort of mainstreamed if you feel congruent to those other outlets in ways that makes them go, hey, could you be on our panel? Hey, could you be a contributor? That is something I would be open to if, you know, if I'm making one up, if, if ABC called and said, would you be an ABC News contributor to talk about issues in the news? Maybe I would. I got a camera. I got a hookup. I can send a signal out. I can do all of this from home, right? I've... The same signal you're using to look at me, I can just tell ABC, hey, here's the RTMP code for where my signal is, and I'll put this up, or maybe I'll just make an unlisted YouTube, and you just load the YouTube up or whatever, put me up on Zoom, and we could just do it that way. So possibly, possibly. That's another piece of it is, is where do you appear and what do you appear next to that may make you mainstream or not. 
Philip Shropshire, hello. Good to see you in the chat. Philip asked on, wrote on YouTube, the model that would work is the Guardian model. In theory, the Amazon lady gives you a half billion dollars or more, and that's owned by the journalists. It can't write about Amazon. If it can't write about Amazon, it's no good. Yeah, the model of the Guardian, and for those of you who don't know what he's referring to, let me go to the Guardian site because they explain their funding model on the site. Let me see if I can pull it up really quickly. The Guardian is funded by a trust. Hang on, stop asking me for money. I need to look something up. About, let me see. The Guardian is funded by an independent trust that basically has a bunch of money that can be used to fund the work of, of The Guardian. So when you look at the page and it says, you know, support The Guardian, provide funding for The Guardian, that is what it's asking to do. There is a trust that was created, trying to find the information quickly, to fund the work of this, here it is. Oh, your connection might not be private. Not clicking that page. But it's a trust called the Scott Trust. And it allowed for the editorial spirit of the paper to continue, and also for it to remain editorially independent by letting the proceeds from that trust fund the Guardian in addition to whatever else the Guardian could fundraise. So that model, it kind of makes sense, and I understand that. That could work. That could absolutely work. I don't think everything needs to be for-profit or non-profit, but we'll see. I think that's, I think that's possible. And I don't know if that's the only way to go, but I see you also, Philip, further down. Again, I'm missing these connected chats. I got to figure out how to hack this and make that work a little more easily. Philip also wrote ProPublica, The Lever, The Intercept, even Democracy Now! saying truthful things about Gaza have been eye-opening and shockingly good. They're all independently owned and run, it shows. Oh, one thing I would show you, since you all are talking about nonprofits, there's a website you should know about called GuideStar. GuideStar.org is a website that allows you to search the IRS documents of nonprofits. You can often find these on their websites too, but if you want to understand how they are run and how they're managed, you can go to GuideStar. Let me see if I can still log on here. And you can look up the various papers that show you how the money is being spent. So for example, if you wanted to look up who's making money, let's just take NPR, for example, you are looking for a form called the 990 NPR. I'll just go to the search. Here it is, National Public Radio. It'll show you the gross receipts, the amount of money that it took in, not the NPR Foundation, that's different. National Public Radio Incorporated. And then you can see the tax forms, show forms 990, you can look at the most recently filed 990 form, and there it is. This is the form that's filed with the IRS to describe the organization, the work that it does, the money that it took in, and how it spent that money. And it defines all the different sources of its assets, what it spent money on, and also the highest compensated members of the organization. So John Lansing, who was until very recently the president and CEO, it shows his total compensation. $396,557, which I imagine is only for part of the year because usually the president makes more than that. But then the other people who are also making significant money at the organization. Steve Inskeep. How much money does Steve Inskeep make? $488,667 in total compensation. Michelle Martin, Rachel Martin, 
Peter Sagal, how much does he wait for, mate for hosting? Wait, wait, don't tell me. I mean, this is all information you're entitled to know. And so the highest compensated people at the organization, this is how you can see where the money goes and have a sense of how they spend it. You don't get the benefit of this with hedge funds like Alden Global Capital. So just something to know if you're going to support these organizations, you do have some insight into how they spend your dollars and you're well within your rights, well within your responsibility to ask some questions about where the money goes. It's called a Form 990, 990. The other thing that I wanted to, to get to, just so you know, uh, before we move on from this, a few other things that I think you should keep an eye on. This goes deeper than journalism. The ways in which we watch television overall are changing in huge ways. You may have just heard that Disney, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery are merging an effort to create a new streaming service for sports where you'll be able to pay one monthly subscription, which looks like it could be 40 or 50 bucks a month, but you would have access to all of the sports that all three of those companies have the rights to broadcast. Sounds interesting. There is a problem. Guess who apparently did not know about this new streaming venture? The sports leagues. According to the Wall Street Journal, the NBA and the NFL did not know. <laughs> what an unforced error to borrow a sports term. Apparently did not know about this thing before it was going to happen. According to the Wall Street Journal, the leagues weren't notified until Tuesday, this Tuesday, before the announcement came out. Some of them apparently learned of it when the Wall Street Journal broke the story about this streaming service. Supposedly, the idea was to prevent it from leaking. Here's the problem. If I'm the NFL, I am so ready to drag your ass to court right now. So ready. Because if you're going to make the streaming service, you're affecting my revenues. Did you know about this before when we just negotiated our contract? Were you bargaining in bad faith? What happens now? Does that mean we're, we're losing revenue? There's a reason why all four major broadcast networks air football. All of them. It's broadcasting they know that you'll watch, and it spares them from having to hunt for the next hit show. They're running low on ideas. And this is a way to cover the fact that the industry has kind of run out of ways to make you watch television without making you watch sports. And I don't knock them for that. Sports are popular. They, you should watch sports if you love them. But the idea that they wouldn't tell the NFL about this and make sure that everyone knew before they said something, ooh, that's not, that's not cute. And then the cost of it, are you going to pay that much per month? Disney just announced its earnings. They said that Disney Plus lost 1.3 million subscribers in the last quarter. And what did they do in the last quarter? They raised the price of Disney Plus. So would you rather have this array of different streaming services or maybe subscribe to something like Hulu TV Live or YouTube TV or, God forbid, cable, where you pay one fee and you get all of these different services? I don't know that all this is going to work. But the larger problem is they're running out of ideas to keep you watching. So if you think that the quality and the breadth of programming is going to increase and improve on conventional outlets with all of these different options, this move, to me, 
says otherwise. This move, the fact that they didn't let the leagues in on their decision, says that there's some real chaos at the top, and they don't know what they're doing. They broke television, and now they're trying to fix it and look like innovators in the process. But they didn't innovate. They just broke it. They're all trying to be Netflix and make Netflix money, and so they hacked it up into digital pieces, and now they're trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And it's not working. That's why this is happening. So the idea that technology is going to fix this, I doubt it very highly. One reason, though, that I think that we should have some hope for all of this. <laughs> oh, before I say that, Tenenda, I see your comment. Tenenda wrote, oh, no, poor NFL and NBA. How will the pro leagues make any money now? I got it. <laughs> point taken, point taken. And look, no one's going to shed any tears from the NFL. They're, they're sitting on a bed of money that's on top of a pile of money, that's on top of a mountain of money, that's on top of a planet made of gold. So it's not like they're going to go broke anytime soon. I get that. It's just that all of this makes it harder for people like you and me to just have a sensible, logical, low-cost TV plan. I don't think this is going to make TV easier, better, or less expensive. I think it's going to make it harder because the cost of getting the programming is not going to drop. The NFL is not going to cut them a deal to make it less expensive. So the cost that you viscerally feel passed on to you may well continue to rise for the foreseeable future. I think that's the real problem. I do have one item that I constantly come back to when I'm thinking, oh my God, it's broken. They broke it. Everything's broken. I don't know how they're going to fix this. You may have heard years ago, or maybe you just saw the movie, that there was a huge scandal with the quiz shows back in the 1950s. There was a quiz show by the name of 21, which aired on NBC, and a Columbia professor named Charles Van Doren became its star. 21 was one of these original high-stakes, high-drama quiz game shows where there's all this money on the line, and you have to answer extremely hard questions to win a boatload of cash. And if you win, you can keep coming back and keep accruing money. And it was everyone in the country watched 21. It turned out that 21 had been feeding Charles Van Doren the answers to keep him on the air. He was handsome. He was sophisticated. He was on the cover of Time Magazine. People loved him. But the whistle got blown by one of his competitors, a guy named Herbert Stemple, who lost to Charles Van Doren and assisted a congressional investigation about the quiz show scandals. So it is now a federal crime to rig a game show. It is a federal crime, and you can go to prison for this. This happened around the time that a young television producer by the name of Merv Griffin wanted to get more into game shows. But when the quiz show scandal broke, he was like, it's over. No one's going to watch this. The industry has destroyed itself. This is never going to reform. There's no way this is going to work. And his wife was like, well, why not? He said, because they're giving them the answers. No one's going to trust a game show where they just give you the answers. And his wife, in the brilliant way that spouses often do, said, well, why is that a problem? What if you just told people you gave them the answers? That's ridiculous. Why would anyone watch a game where they give you the answers in advance? And she said, no, 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 no. If you're honest about it and just tell people we're giving them the answers, maybe there's another way about it. Maybe they just give you the question. That makes no sense. And she said to him, 5,280. And he said, how many feet are in a mile? And she said, 221B Baker Street. 
And he said, what is Sherlock Holmes's address? And then the idea formed. And they spent all night firing answers and questions back to one another. One would give the answer, the other would come up with the question. Out of this scandal, where everyone said that the industry was destroyed, came the classic game show known as What's the Question? But when they demoed the game, the executive who saw it said, I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, you, they give you the question and then you give them money it doesn't have enough tension to it. What if, if they get it wrong, you deduct the money? Well, yeah, but they don't do that on game shows. Well, but maybe we should. It just doesn't feel like it has enough risk. It, it needs more high stakes. It needs, it needs more jeopardy. That's where it came from. Out of the greatest scandal that the television industry had ever seen, a scandal that threatened to cut off the most popular form of television at the time, next to sports, emerged the greatest quiz show ever. That, as it turns out, was better than anything that had ever aired before and will probably never be equaled again. Out of this impossible situation, where quiz shows were doomed, came America's favorite answer and question game, Jeopardy. I guarantee you're hearing the theme in your head right now. So for me, I take two things from this. One, everyone who is bemoaning the death of the mainstream media, the Perry Bacon Juniors of the world, they need to learn their history. We're not a rollover and die kind of industry. And we're not a rollover and die kind of country. Something's going to work. Something's gonna happen. I'm doing my part. I'm damn sure not the only person trying to innovate in this field. And you, I don't think, want to see all journalism fall apart. If you see something you like, you're gonna support it, you're gonna tell your friends about it, you're gonna patronize it. Some of you have shifted your schedules so you can be here part of the live broadcast. That means the world. But if you'll do it, maybe someone else will too. We're never gonna know unless people like me are taking these bets and taking these gambles, but something's going to work. Even if it's not the nightlight, something's gonna work. Maybe I'll be part of it, maybe I won't. Something's gonna happen because there's too much opportunity for it not to work. But then beyond that, it reminds me to be very humble in the way I view the circumstances around me. It reminds me to be humble and to accept the possibility that a solution may emerge that I cannot foresee in all kinds of situations. It's why I don't like dwelling too much on the prognostication around today's Supreme Court hearing. Well, it certainly looks like Trump's gonna win. Let it happen, wait and see. You don't have to predict the future. You barely understand today. Why do I need to predict anything? Why do I need to suppose the future? I'd rather just try to build it. I'd rather just try to be part of a better version of it. I'd rather just try to come up with, <laughs> with a new game to play that is not only inviting and exciting, but honest and fair and sustainable, if not profitable. That's the lane I would rather be in. So as much as I am worried, and I mean deeply worried for the future of my industry, I also have to temper my own fears because I have seen the way that that goes. I have seen what happens when industries 
have their backs to the wall. And I've seen how much innovation comes from extremely tough circumstances. But that's what we need. We need innovation, we need focus, we need a little optimism, and we need a willingness to build something better than what we had. That's the correct response. And don't waste your money on a bunch of these expensive streaming services. If you're like me, you subscribe to some and you drop some others. There's a lot of other options out there. And hey, if you use YouTube, some of your options are free. Like this one, the one you've been listening to for the last few hours. And hey, thank you so very much for spending this time with me. The Nevada caucuses are today. I will have some results of the caucuses tomorrow. We'll talk a bit about the Super Bowl as well. Remember to go to nightlightjoshua.com. Follow me on social media at nightlightjoshua. Leave a review of the podcast and the show on YouTube and click the notification bell to not miss another episode. Until we meet again, I'm Joshua Johnson. Thank you so very much for making time for me. And as always, my friends, keep on shining because someone, somewhere, needs your light right now.